Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Grand Rounds. And uh, it, it does feel like spring this morning as opposed to Friday that uh, was uh, a little bit snowy. I think we had moved up to uh, somewhere in, in Canada, but uh, now it feels great. It feels right. It's uh, you know, a lot of uh, renewed optimism, I believe. And uh, you know, COVID-19, at least for Connecticut, is uh, in the right direction. Uh, if you listen to the governor last night, and I'll, I'll just read my notes from uh, from Emily Boucher, who's our government relations associate. Every morning I get an email uh, with an update. And uh, yesterday the governor announced that on May 1st, the state will uh, lift outdoor COVID restrictions. I believe that also uh, if you have outdoor bars, I don't know where you go to outdoor bars, but that's uh, supposed to be open. And beginning May 19th, all COVID-19 related business restrictions with the exception of masking will be lifted. And uh, so that's interesting. Uh, so you can go to yard goats games. I think they're opening at some point soon. And for those of us who, who like baseball, I think this will be a fun time to get back. Uh, and I think the Hartford Athletic, all the things are beginning to come back. Uh, of course, we still have to be careful. Not everyone's vaccinated, not, not everyone's ready. Uh, what I know is that 61%, that's really remarkable, of all adults in Connecticut, uh, that's over the age of 16, have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, which I think is just remarkable. Now, at the same time, we 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 did uh, reach a uh, you know just a terrible milestone that 8,000 Connecticut residents have died from COVID-19. So, again, my my uh, message to you is we we're on the right path. We're getting there. I think the summer looks really good for uh, Connecticut Connecticut residents, for the kids. Uh, we we're getting better at vaccination. Uh, but you still have to be careful. You know, still be careful. Don't lower your guard yet. Not quite there yet. Now, today we're going to have a, a really, really important Grand Rounds on, on racism, uh, which is a societal pathogen. It's another, another pandemic that we have to deal with. And uh, we we're very fortunate that Dr. Spinks Franklin has logged in from uh, Houston. We, we made her get up early this morning. I think it's 7 a.m. there. So really appreciate that she uh, she's making this great effort. Uh, as you will hear that she's a fantastic uh, speaker. And to, to introduce her, I'm going to ask Dr. Rob Ketter, Come up to the podium. Uh, I think all of you know Rob. Rob has become a, a TV personality through this pandemic. Uh, he's been a source of comfort for all the families, um, and uh, all of those who know you, you know him. Uh, you know why that is. Uh, he's a caring, charismatic, uh, warm uh, pediatrician, developmental specialist uh, who takes care of uh, some of the more, our most difficult patients. I've always admired him. It was great to recruit him back into Connecticut. He did his residency here. Um, from he trained in Boston and then uh, was a little bit for a short time up in Bay State, but we felt that it was better to for him to be in the South, and I think that was a good decision for him. At least he's, at least he tells me that. I'm not sure if he's in private. He says the same thing, but we're just really delighted and lucky to have him. Uh, gives a, a great sense of comfort when you when you talk to him, and families absolutely adore him and love him. So, Rob, if you can uh, please introduce Dr. Spinks Franklin and the Grand Rounds. We're looking forward to it. Um, good morning. Uh, thank you, Dr. Salazar, and I hope everyone here is excited. Um, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Adia Spinks Franklin, um, both a personal mentor and friend, and one of the first faces I recall meeting as I started attending the Society for Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics meetings. Adia did her undergraduate in Texas, then moved on to Nashville for medical school at Mahari Medical College School of Medicine. She did her residency in Michigan at Children's Hospital of Michigan, and then did dual fellowships in advocacy and developmental and behavioral pediatrics at Boston Children's Hospital. 
She is an associate professor of pediatrics at Texas Children's and Baylor College of Medicine. Um, she precedes me as one of the advocacy co-chairs for the Society for Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics, then served her term as a board member and is a founding member of RACECARD, Race and Children Educational Collaborative of Anti-Racist Developmental and Behavioral Pediatric Professionals. Um, their first inaugural meeting started in 2017 where they really began training our professional society in understanding what racism is and understanding race as an adverse childhood experience. Um, her work has accumulated in 2020 as she is now the inaugural co-chair of the um, Committee for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Society of Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics. So once again, I would very much like to introduce um, a good friend, a good mentor, and um, a, another person who shares a love of Got to Give It Up by Marvin Gaye, um, my friend, Dr. Adia Spinks Franklin. Rob, this is one of the numerous reasons why I love you. <laughs> Rob is my dance partner when we go to the society meetings annually. We like to boogie down. So thank you so much for those kind words. And thank you for inviting me. And I thank you to the, to the chair for introducing me. I'm gonna share my screen now so we can get started. Um, I want to give one disclaimer. I take care of my father. He has stage five Alzheimer's. So it's early here in Oklahoma and he may wake up and come in the room behind me. I'm just asking for your forgiveness in advance. Those of you who've cared for a parent know exactly what I'm experiencing. And those of you keep living, if you haven't done it, you might be blessed with this, what I call the divine assignment of caring for parents when they can no longer care for themselves because they cared for us when we couldn't care for ourselves. So our top today is racism, a societal pathogen. I first want to acknowledge that we all live on stolen land. And this is the map of Connecticut and of the ancestral lands of the indigenous people. I greet you from the land of the Chickasaw Nation. And I encourage you and invite you to type in the chat what lands you occupy of the indigenous people currently or the lands where you were born. Uh, I pay respect to all the indigenous nations of what is now Connecticut to their ancestors and to their elders. And I acknowledge the truth of the violence and terrorism that has been perpetuated in the name of this country against all of the indigenous nations of North and South America. I also honor the memory of our ancestors who were terrorized during the Mafa, which is the African Holocaust. I pay honor to those who survived and to those who did not. I also stand in solidarity with our Asian and Asian American brothers, sisters, and elders who have seen an unprecedented increase in violence against Asian Americans that has not been reported at this level since probably World War II, um, but is not new because we know that anti-Asian racism existed well into the 1800s and all the way through until today. Uh, we speak out against this violence and we stand in solidarity with them. Finally, I'd like to dedicate this talk to Dr. Aisha Curry. I don't know Dr. Curry, I've never met her, but Dr. Curry um, was fired for doing something that I'm currently doing, which is talking about racism. She was a physician at Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine. She was hired into a school that is that was established purportedly to be a school for social justice and social justice medicine. She was told to teach the medical students about racism last summer. And when she did, someone got offended. She lost her job. So whenever people of color 
um, stand up and speak out against racism, we take a major risk. So I dedicate this talk to Dr. Curry. Now, these are my disclosures. I actually have a disclosure, Rob. Developmental pediatricians don't have like disclosures, but I am, as of February, an expert consultant for the website understood.org. I will not be discussing any off-label use of products. I identify as a Black and African-American cisgender woman. I experience routinely um, gendered racism, which is the intersectionality of racism and sexism that women of color experience in this country. I'm a member of the lowest racial caste in US society. I'm a descendant of enslaved Africans and enslaved indigenous people in the United States. I'm considered to be an untouchable. And it is these lived experiences that shape me as a human being, as a physician and as a presenter. I wanna thank you in advance for giving us permission to talk today about a topic that nobody likes to talk about in mixed company. And I thank you in advance for bringing your openness, your flexibility, your empathy, and your compassion to today's session. And I thank you in advance for allowing yourself to grow in this experience by becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable because that is when we're able to grow. Now, during today's talk, I will likely trigger something that is called white fragility or defensiveness or psychological threat. Um, white fragility is a sociological term that was coined by Dr. Robin D'Angelo, a sociologist with over 30 years of experience in researching issues of race and culture. And she described white fragility as the experience that some whites have when they are confronted with issues of race and racism. So during this talk, if I trigger your white fragility, then you might feel singled out or attacked, silenced, shamed, guilty, accused, judged, angry, scared, outraged, any of these feelings. And when these feelings emerge, you might be tempted to become defensive, to cry, to wanna you know, put me on mute, to focus on the intentions of your behavior versus the impact of your behavior. And it's the impact that actually is most important. Um, even to check your emails, your Instagram feed or your epic notes. And instead of doing these, I'm gonna ask you to be mindful and take a deep breath, acknowledge the feeling, and then try one of these other, other uh, strategies like saying to a friend or texting someone, you know, I'm really uncomfortable saying this, but um, can you help me understand whether what I'm thinking right now is problematic? You know, I'm engaged, I just need time to process this. Um, there are many ways of managing these uncomfortable feelings so we can grow and uh, be able to move past these feelings of defensiveness and fragility. In addition, it is also possible that I trigger the racial stress and trauma of, uh, of people of color in the audience, of the BIPOC population, Blacks, Indigenous, and people of color who have suffered from the effects of racial trauma, racial stress, and what's also called a racial threat. And during this talk, um, you might have some symptoms, like you might be re-experiencing a distressful event. Um, you might start feeling your sympathetic nervous system um, activate. So you might have some hyperarousal, you might feel stress, you might get some negative emotions, you might want to avoid talking about this topic altogether and shut me down, put me on mute, you need your MOC credit, so you're not going to completely cut me off, but you might just, you know, just, just, just mute my face or something. Um, so again, I'm going to invite you to use mindfulness techniques and take a deep breath and engage in techniques that have been shown to reduce the uh, stress of racial trauma, which is things such as prayer and mindfulness and spiritual practices, um, relaxation techniques, um, body checking, and things of that sort. And also just get engaged in activism to combat racism so you feel empowered 
um, to fight against and to help dismantle this system of racism and uh, white supremacy. Now, it's going to be very hard to do this talk in an hour. In fact, this morning I found out I had 50 minutes, y'all. So I'm going to do the best I can. So let's get started. This is 1979, Girl Scout Troop 456. We were brownies. We were in third grade. This angel here is my mother who's gone on to glory. She was our troop leader. She was also a biology and chemistry teacher in high school. And this is Mrs. Hipple. She was my mother's. They were uh, co-troop leaders and very good friends. They were both friends until they both passed on. And all these girls were my friends and this is me. What's special about this picture in the third grade is that this picture represents my last year of racial innocence. Um, it's the last year that I knew nothing about racism. Now I knew what racial identity was. I knew what my racial category was. I knew I was black and Chanel was black and Erica was black. I knew that Francis, my friend was Mexican which is the term we used at the time. And, and the twins were Mexican, um, Crystal, Christine, and we used to call her Crystal. I don't know why we called her Crystal, but Crystal, Christine and Crystal. And I knew that Terry and Marlies and Stephanie were white, but there was no hierarchy among us. We were all just friends. We all played Wonder Woman and Dukes of Hazzard on the playground. And, um, but it was in fourth grade that everything changed. What happened in fourth grade is that I was admitted to the gifted and talented program for our small town of Wharton, Texas. Um, when, my, when we moved there, my mother insisted that I be uh, admitted to the gifted and talented program, but the school administrators told my mother that it was not designed for the colored children and the Mexican children. It was only for the white children. And my mother said she will prove you wrong. And so for a year she fought and in the fourth grade I entered the gifted and talented program for Wharton Independent School District. It was such a momentous event that I was on the front page of the town newspaper, y'all. And that was cool. The gifted intelligence program was awesome, except I had one teacher um, who was abusive, racially abusive. Her name was Mrs. King. She was our language arts teacher. And what she would do, those of you born in the, in the 70s, you know what I'm talking about. Gen Xers know exactly what I'm talking about. After recess, um, you'd put your head on your desk and the teachers would read you a story to calm your little sweaty self down after recess. Well, Mrs. King would choose stories with black characters that were just absolutely grotesque. They were subservient and they were ignorant and they were they were uh, clout, clownish and cartoonish. Mrs. King was a middle-aged white woman and she would make faces and voices and then she would pause and allow the white children in the class to laugh at me and point at me and tell me to go back to Africa. And some of the girls in this picture who were my friends engaged in that behavior at the permission and the behest of this adult who encouraged it. And I would go home crying every day. Mommy, why am I so dark? Mommy, why is my hair so nappy? Mommy, why, was it, why, why did you give me a Nigerian name? Mommy, just every day. And I would say things like, Mommy, it would have been so much easier if I were born a little white boy because little white boys never get in trouble. Little black girls always get in trouble. So my mother handled that situation, needless to say. But the abuse didn't stop. The racial abuse continued at the hands of my teachers and administrators all the way through school, in high school even. Um, my senior year almost dropped out of high school for a multitude of reasons. I was a straight A student. I had every single honors class or class our school had to offer, but my teachers were so punitive and so cruel that they made going to school miserable. So Christmas of 1988, winter break, my senior year, my mother taught at my high school and she was forever my, my coach and my support. And she said, not sports coach, because I'm unathletic y'all, uh, but my life coach, do you understand what I'm saying? And I said to my mother, well, mommy said, well, Monday we go back to school. And I says, well, I hope you have a good time because I'm not going back. 
And she says, what do you mean? I says, mommy, I can't deal with those white people anymore. It's awful going to school. So I'm just going to drop out. I have straight A's. I've got my GPA. I've got my class rank. I'm just going to get my GED and I'm going to go to university and then I'm going to go to Meharry and I'm going to become a pediatrician. And my mother said, you know what? You probably can become a pediatrician with a GED. But if you drop out of high school, that cloud is going to follow you your whole life. You're going to let those racist white people win. And my mother said, Adia, you never let them win. You prove them wrong. So I stayed in high school, graduated with honors, graduated from college, medical school with honors, and I'm here today because of my mother. So it is these early experiences that shape who I am today. So the purpose of today's talk is for me to just plant a seed of anti-racism. I'm not here to convert you. I'm not here to change your hearts and minds. I cannot do that. That is something that you have to do. I'm going to present you with the data, and you do with the data what you will. But these are the three things we will cover today. We will define and identify racism in all of its forms and levels. We'll describe the ways in which racism can act as a pathogen. And then we're gonna explain some best practices for interrupting, destroying and dismantling the system of racism in healthcare. Um, you may hear me use the term BIPOC and I just wanna introduce it. It stands for Black, Indigenous and People of Color. I'm a Gen Xer, it's a new term to me. The younger folks already know this term but I'm becoming more comfortable using it. Now, Homeland Security, fighting terrorism since 1492. This is one of my all-time favorite posters. And I show this to say racism didn't just start with the George Floyd protest of, of summer 2020. You might have just now recognized it, but we've been fighting this battle since 1492. Sacagawea fought this battle. Frederick Douglass fought this battle. Uh, Ida B. Wells fought this battle. This isn't anything new, and we are still fighting racist ideas and racist systems. I'm going to build an analogy, so stick with me on this journey. What is a pathogen? This is our friend, good old Mr. COVID. Um, and if a pathogen is an infectious organism, microorganism that causes disease or damage in a living organism. And pathogens come in different forms. They're bacteria, viruses, fungi, and parasites, and more. And what are the characteristics of a pathogen? Well, uh, in order to survive, a pathogen requires a host, a mode of transmission, a mechanism of replication in the host, a means of causing disease, and then it elicits a response in the host. So how does a pathogen infect? Well, a new host is exposed to infectious particles that are shed by an infected individual. Now the number, route, and mode of transmission and the stability of the pathogen outside of the host determine is how infectious it can be. And a pathogen must establish a focus of infection in order to replicate. And only when a pathogen has successfully established a site of infection in the host does disease occur. Now, the immune system of the host responds to the pathogen either by blocking or failing to block the pathogen at any of the above phases. So what is racism? Most people in the United States have what I call a pre-kindergarten level of racial literacy. Our understanding of, race, of racism is very, very limited and also very immature. It's sort of a five-year-old definition of racism that people are mean to you because your skin complexion is different. And that is appropriate for a five-year-old, like my friend's daughter, that is her definition of racism and it's appropriate. And it's not appropriate when you're 45 years old. We gotta move beyond the pre-kindergarten level racial literacy terms. I'm a developmental pediatrician, so you might hear me call out some age, age uh, domains and grade levels. <laughs> so, Racism is what we talk about in societies like a big glacier. Only a part of it is at the top, which is the most explicit, visible components of racism. 
but actually most of racism is under the surface. And we're gonna be talking about some of these surface uh, forms of racism today. So racism is this organized and dynamic system in which a dominant racial group based on this hierarchical ideology develops and sustains structures and behaviors that privilege the dominant group while simultaneously and systematically disempowering and removing resources from racial groups that are deemed to be inferior. Now, race is a social construct that was established in the late 1800s, early 1700s in this country to stratify people into this social hierarchy based upon normal human variations, such as skin complexion, hair texture. Uh, and racism has three levels according to the, to the work of Dr. Um, Dr. Kamara Jones. There's institutionalized racism, interpersonal racism, and internalized racism. And there's a lot of different forms of racism, colorblind, culture, um, gendered, environmental, and medical. With the three levels of racism, I'm sure many of you have read Dr. Jones' article, which is brilliant, uh, published more than 20 years ago. Institutionalized racism is also called structural systemic racism. And this is the form of racism that is ubiquitous. I call this the threads of the quilt. Uh, my great-grandmother was a quilter, my grandmother was a quilter, and so we still have their quilts, right? They're over 70 years old, and they're head together by threads that you barely see, but you know that they're there. That's racism. And it is codified in our customs, laws, practices, traditions, policies uh, throughout our society. Dr. Jones says that institutionalized racism um, leads to differential access to goods, services, and opportunities in society by racial caste. Um, and that includes differential access to material goods, material conditions, such as education, housing, employment, healthcare, environment, which are the social determinants of health, right? And then there's differential access to power, which is information such as accurate, up-to-date health information, resources, and political voice. Interpersonal racism is the form of racism that most of us think about, these interpersonal interactions. It's also called personally mediated racism. And these are acts of prejudice and discrimination that are experienced between members of a dominant racial caste and members of a subordinate caste. Um, implicit bias, which is our, our unconscious racial attitudes, this is the soil that fuels interpersonal racism. And microaggressions are the acts of interpersonal racism that occur on a regular basis. Now, internalized racism is drinking the poison Kool-Aid. It is accepting the notion that white people are superior and non-white people are inferior. In the black community, we have a saying, the white man's ice is colder, his sugar is sweeter, and his water is wetter. And that is the idea that anything the white man does has got to be better than what we do. That, my friend, is internalized racism. Um, for BIPOC populations, it's believing in your own inferiority, and in whites, it's believing in your own superiority. That is internalized racism. Now, racist ideas flourish and fuel internalized racism. According to Dr. Ibram X. Kendi in his book, Stamped from the Beginning, which is a brilliant text that I, I should recommend that you read, um, it says any concept that regards one racial group as superior and another racial group as inferior is a racist idea. He breaks racist ideas into two camps, that the segregationist ideas and the assimilationist ideas. Those with segregationist ideas actually believe that Black people are inherently inferior and they want to control and contain us and they want to distance themselves and segregate themselves from Black people and members of other lower racial castes. And you can see this in policies, for example, that say, okay, well, the housekeeping staff cannot eat in the same room with the faculty. That is a segregationist idea. Why can't the housekeeping staff eat in the same, if it's a cafeteria, if it's a break room, why can't we all eat together, right? 
then there's assimilationist ideas. And this is where you, yes, you believe that black people are inferior, but you want to change us and mold us to be more white. So we are more palatable to white people. If you just didn't talk that way, if you didn't dress that way, if your hair were straighter, it would just be more presentable and it would be more professional. Those are assimilationist racist ideas. So whenever there are policies, for example, that um, that are natural hair laws that say that black women have to wear our hair straight, or a spoken language policy saying that you can only speak English in this environment. Those are assimilationist racist ideas. Now, an anti-racist idea is one that recognizes that is the system of racism and white supremacy that is inherently wrong and has to be changed. And it's the system that is the reason for racial disparities in this country. Now, racism has a whole lot of different forms. Colorblind racism is when we deny and ignore ongoing discrimination and oppression that stigmatized groups have uh, feel in this country. Gendered racism is this intersectionality as we discussed between sexism and racism. And then environmental racism are these policies that place non-white people at higher risk for poor environmental outcomes, like what happened with redlining, with food deserts, even where garbage dumps are placed. Then cultural racism is also referred to as whiteness. And this is where this is pervasive in the society where white is assumed to be the norm. Like when people use the term American, they're referring to white, which is really insulting to me personally, because I'm generation seven. My family's been here for 10 generations. Like you don't get more American than me unless you are indigenous, right? So, you know, if your grandparents came over from Europe, I say, welcome to my country. I hope your stay has been nice. <laughs> and also another form of cultural racism is when, you know, biblical characters like Moses and Jesus are white. They weren't white, they were Jewish. White wasn't even invented then. When you got Santa Claus and Tooth Fairy, why are they white? Why can't Santa Claus be Jamaican and Tooth Fairy be Japanese? Like, why they gotta be white? Then there's medical racism, which is what we're gonna talk about today. Then it's the historical abuse of people of color by the system, the medical and healthcare system that does not value them. So here's an example of cultural racism. So I like in all of my talks to give an example of one of the flavors of racism. Andrew Jackson, the $20 bill. Now in most countries, people put their heroes on their, on their money, right? So in a lot of countries, they put scientists and inventors and mathematicians and artists and they put presidents and leaders as well. Where on our money, we put slave masters. So Andrew Jackson was a slave master. He also was the president responsible for the Indian Removal Act, which led to the Trail of Tears, where thousands upon thousands of indigenous people died walking from Southeast United States all the way to the Oklahoma Territory, to what is called Indian Territory. He is our hero that we celebrate on the $20 bill. So whenever you Whenever you spend a 20, when we look at this face, it is an insult to every person of African descent and to all indigenous people in this country. That's an example of cultural racism. Now, what is race? Race is a recent human invention that was established to create a social caste system in the United States. And they use these easily distinguishable phenotypic features that are part of normal human variation. And these racial categories, because they were invented, they change over time. And I invite you to go to the Pew Research Center and look at the US Census data starting at 1790 up until 2010. And you will see how those racial categories change over time. And in fact, the people who were considered white today were not considered white 100 years ago. So many of you, your ancestors may have come from Italy or Poland. They may have been Jewish ancestors and they weren't considered white, they were considered color, colored. And they went to live in the areas where the blacks, the Latinos lived. Um, 
But after one or two generations, those European populations were enveloped into the category of white and were pushed into the dominant racial caste of society to, uh, to benefit from the, the upper caste uh, designation. Race is not biological, it is social. And I know somebody is arguing with me right now. So I'm gonna invite you to read. I'm gonna invite you to read and to study. So that when we do have a conversation, you're coming to me with facts, not with conjecture. So humans have ancestry. We are born with ancestry. Race is thrust upon us after we are born. Race is not biological. So this is something I heard on um, Hidden Brain this past weekend. My dad and I love listening to NPR and um, the Scythian lamb. I had not heard about this, but the Scythian lamb was this popularly held belief in Europe during the Middle Ages. And what <laughs> these travel authors claimed that there was a lamb growing out of plants by its umbilical cord in parts of Asia. Now, nobody ever saw this lamb, but this lamb was all over the literature. There was children's books written about the lamb. Scientific literature had a picture of the Cynthia lamb along with like an apple and a grapefruit and a puppy dog. And everybody believed in the Cynthia lamb for hundreds of years, and it was a myth. So race medicine is our Cynthia lamb because race is not biological. So whenever you think that something about a person's race is what put them at risk for their disease, I want you to think, oh, oh, wait, this is the vegetable lamb of Tartari. <laughs> so let's talk about racism as a societal pathogen. So in order for racism to survive, it needs a host, a mode of transmission in the host. It needs a mechanism of replication within that host. It causes disease then it elicits a response in the host. And then I added number six, in order to destroy it, racism needs treatment. So in order for racism to survive, it requires a host. So how do we host racism? Now you have a handout that is available on EADS, E-E-D-S, is that right? That has everything, y'all. It is like a textbook. I'm writing this up to publish this, so don't be taking my ideas because I'm gonna call you out. Anyway. <laughs> The handout has everything. This is an abbreviated version of the handout, okay? So when you look at racism um, as a, how are we hosts of racism? I think of the institution being a host of racism as well as individuals. And institutions are hosts of racism through structural racism. And that includes your policies, your practices and your procedures, like hiring practices. So we know the data that shows that if you have an African-American sounding name on a resume or an application, you get 50% the number of callbacks of someone who has a white sounding name on the same, with the same exact qualifications on the resume. Look at your recruitment and retention policies and your promotion policies. We know that in academia, African-American, Hispanic-American, and Asian-American faculty are promoted at much lower rates than their white counterparts, even when their CVs and their research productivity is equal. Um, we know that research funding has traditionally been um, been undermined at the NIH by their racist policies. A study came out in 2019 that showed that Black researchers who applied for R01 funding through the NIH were significantly more likely to be denied funding. In fact, their applications didn't even go to full discussion uh, if their topic had to do with issues of race, racism, discrimination, and the like. And then there's curricular content. When you look at uh, our step one questions, if you look at our lectures, we tend to host racism by continuing to perpetuate race as a biological entity rather than a social factor, a demographic factor. Then the way we trans, we continue to host racism is through internalized racism in the individual. So we know that most healthcare providers are just like most people in the United States. 
They hold anti-Black, anti-Latino, anti-American Indian, anti-dark-skinned implicit racial biases, these negative implicit racial biases. And that's true for physicians, nurses. There's a whole bit of literature on genetic counselors, uh, therapists, including occupational therapists, psychologists, social workers, all hold negative implicit racial bias. And if I didn't call your crew, that means I don't know about your crew, but I bet your crew also holds uh, negative implicit racial bias. All of these biases contribute to the disparities in healthcare access, quality, and our delivery of healthcare. And it is our internalized racism that contributes to microaggressions that we have with our trainees and with our staff. So let's talk about this institution hosting racism. Dr. Princess Dinar is an internal medicine pediatric physician who was the program director for the residency program at our institution at Tulane. And she was reportedly told by the Dean of the School of Medicine that not enough white medical students were applying to their program because they had a black program director. So they would feel more comfortable if she became co-program director with the white male that used to lead the med peace program. That's hosting racism in that institution, assuming that a black program director isn't good enough to recruit enough white students to the program. So how are you and your institution hosting racism? Let's talk about racism tr being transmitted. How do we transmit racism? Well, just like with any other pathogen, it could be transmitted vertically, it can be transmitted horizontally. It can also be transmitted intergenerationally. That's why I say Sacagawea was fighting this mess by herself with 60 men in the Lewis and Clark expedition, and I'm fighting it today, 500 years later, right? So that's an intergenerational transfer. Let's talk about the vertical transfer in medicine. So this can happen provider to patient, doctor to patient. We know that that a negative implicit bias really influences the way providers, and that most of the research has been done on physicians administer healthcare. We know that when physicians have pro-white, anti-Black bias, they are much less likely to provide the standard of medical care to their patients. That includes appropriate testing, preventive care, communication, referrals, and interventions and treatment. Uh, the vertical transmission of racism can occur from attending to trainee and microaggressions. We know there's uh, just tons of examples in the literature of trainees experiencing microaggressions, such as being told that our names are too hard to pronounce, uh, making comments about our hair, comments about our accents, asking us where we are from, from, um, telling us that we speak so well. Don't you ever tell a person of color they speak so well? That is an insult. I had a colleague tell me that three week, three years ago when I did a television interview like Rob does. And this is what I said to her, the only time it is appropriate for you to tell a person they speak so well is if I have an articulation disorder and you are my speech pathologist and I have been struggling with pronouncing the TH sound and I've been saying this, this and that instead of this and that. And one day I come into speech therapy and I say, this is a beautiful day. And you as my speech pathologist say, oh my goodness, Adia, you speak so well. That is the only time it's appropriate to tell somebody they speak so well. Otherwise, it is an insult because the insult, the assumption is people that look like me should not have mastered the King's English. Another microaggression, your name is too hard to pronounce. I've lived with that my entire life. So I learned from a physician who's Nigerian who said, if you can say Schwarzenegger, you can say my name. So I'm gonna take it to the next level. If you can say supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, you can say my name. When you act like it is too hard to pronounce names from South Asia, East Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, but at the same time, you can pronounce multi-syllabic names from Europe, 
you are devaluing the non-European names. And that is a racist notion. And that is a microaggression. We know that in medical school, in the clinical rotation years, the third and fourth years of medical school, that Black, Latinx, and American, um, Asian American medical students receive lower clinical grades than their white counterparts, even when they have the same step one scores. Uh, we know that Black and Asian American medical students are much less likely to be recommended for Alpha Omega Alpha National Honor Society in medical school. And the literature is very interesting that Dean's letters of white students have much more standout words, positive words, compared to the Dean's letters of Black, Hispanic, and Asian, and Asian American medical students. And we know about the vertical transmission of anti-Asian racism, uh, where people have lost their jobs, people have been abused uh, by people in positions of power because of their, their Asian ancestry. Now, there's also the horizontal transmission of racism, which I think of as more peer-to-peer. -peer. So this is assuming that the BIPOC individual is not the physician, not the CEO, not the president of the company, not the head of the department. Um, the lack of respect that many of us have received at the hands of our colleagues and nurses, um, discounting our abilities and our competence as a physician, questioning our decision-making without appropriate evidence-based reasons for questioning our decision-making, um, receiving inappropriate comments about our hair, our race, our clothing, and just the structural biases that are within the institution with sub substantially fewer advancement opportunities. Um, these are the ways that racism has been transmitted in medicine. I would like to pay tribute to the memory of Ms. Joyce Echequan, who was a member of the Antemequa Nation in Canada. Um, she's an indigenous woman who died because of racism. She was sick in the hospital in, in um, Quebec back in September. And as she was dying, she videotaped on Facebook Live. God bless her. God bless her strength. She turned on Facebook Live to record the nurses around her. He was spewing the most ugly, racist words at her as she lay dying in her hospital bed. Ms. Echaquan died because of racism. So how have you or your institution transmitted racism? So in order for racism to survive, it has to replicate. So how does this racism replicate in medicine? Oh my gosh, medicine has been a beautiful host. We've transmitted racism and how has it replicated? Hundreds of years. Modern medicine was built on the bodies of our African and indigenous ancestors, period. So let's start with just one example. If you wanna read more, read uh, the book, uh, Medical Apartheid very good history of medical racism and abuse in this country. So here are a few examples. Dr. Marion Sims is considered to be the father of gynecology. He was a gynecologist in the 1800s who performed uh, and perfected his gynecological procedures, such as the, ve the vesico-vaginal um, fistula repair, the anterior and posterior repairs. He perfected those on the bodies of enslaved Black women He uh, without any anesthesia. And he rented them from, their, uh, from the slave owner. He performed these surgeries. Many of these women went through surgeries multiple times. One woman, in fact, went, had 30 procedures on her body without anesthesia. And when he perfected the surgeries, he closed the clinic he had established for these women behind his house in Alabama. And he moved to North Carolina, uh, to New York, opened the women's hospital there and performed these surgeries on the bodies of white women using anesthesia that had always been available. Then we know about the Tuskegee study, which is probably the most popular, most infamous because uh, it occurred throughout the 20th century for 40 years. And this is where hundreds of black men in Tuskegee who had syphilis, it was left untreated on purpose to, uh, 
to um, see the natural history of syphilis. Even when antibiotics became available during World War II, they were denied treatment. And those families received reparations because of that abuse. And that is one of the biggest reasons why we have IRBs today. Then we know about the eugenics movement that started in the late 1800s throughout the 1900s. It officially ended in the mid 1900s, but the eugenics mentality has continued um, throughout uh, the 20th century into the 2010s. So the eugenics movement was used to sterilize women of color. So 25% of American Indian women were sterilized between the 60s and 70s. Um, African-American women, numerous of them, hundreds if not thousands, were sterilized in Southern states from North Carolina all the way to Louisiana. They received something called Mississippi appendectomies, where they would go in for one surgery and come out sterilized against their consent. Latina and Asian American women who are incarcerated in California uh, are sterilized against their will. The most recent case that I read in the literature and in the media was in 2014, even though forced sterilization of inmates was um, outlawed in 2010, it still happened in 2014. And then we know about the HeLa cells, right? Henrietta Lacks aggressive cells that were used in thousands of, of experiments um, without her consent or her family's knowledge. And then how is uh, ra racism replicated today in medicine? Well, in our preclinical curricula, in our basic science curricula, it shows that we inaccurately present race as a biological rather than a social construct in our lectures, 46 year old black male with hypertension. We say, oh, he's got high blood pressure because he's black. No, he has high blood pressure because of st negative social determinants of health, including structural racism. Now, there's this very fascinating story that was a study that was conducted on 400 plus medical students and pediatric residents, where they gave them a questionnaire on false health beliefs. And half of them reported at least one false health beliefs about the biological difference between black folks and white folks. Isn't that crazy? And then the medical students and residents who had those false beliefs were giving case vignettes and deciding what the treatment was. You know what they did? Those who believed in false beliefs would rate the black patient's pain as lower and would make inappropriate treatment recommendations based on that false belief. This is how racism replicates in medicine, this idea of race-based medicine. They believe, for example, that black people didn't feel pain like white people. That's a lie. Our bones are stronger. That's a lie. We age more slowly. That's a lie. When we say black don't crack, that is just a saying, y'all. It is not based on a randomized controlled trial. In fact, studies show the opposite. We have a shorter life expectancy as black Americans and our telomere lengths are much shorter. They have a 10 year aging difference between our white counterparts when we've, we've experienced racism. And then researchers often conflate SES with race in their data analysis, which is inappropriate, are using social, uh, social economic status as a proxy for race. That's wrong. So here's an example of a nursing textbook. Some of y'all may have heard about this in social media that was published in 2015. This is one page of the book that talks about cultural differences and responses to pain. And y'all, we, we got to talk about this. In this textbook that was published by Pearson Education in 2015, this textbook literally gives this advice to nurses. Arabs may not request pain medicine, but instead thank Allah for the pain if it will result in healing process. Indians who follow Hindu practices believe that pain must be endured in preparation for a better life in the next cycle. Let's talk about the Jews. Jews may be vocal and demand assistance and believe that pain must be shared and validated by others. And the poor Chinese are so pious. 
they may not even ask to pay medicine because they just don't want to bother you. You got more important things to do than worry about the pain of your Chinese patients. Do you know how racist this is and how this contributes to the neglect and mistreatment and the under-management of pain in patients of color? But there's somebody missing from this list. What about white people? What about white people's cultural pain perceptions? It's very interesting. Every time we talk about culture, we don't never talk about white culture. White people, you have culture too. So let's talk about how racism was replicated with Dr. Susan Moore and we pay honor to her memory. She died. Dr. Susan Moore died because of racism. She was an internist in Indiana who treated patients with COVID-19 and she contracted COVID-19 and was hospitalized in her system. And throughout her hospitalization, Dr. Moore reported on social media to her family and friends of what poor treatment she received how her treating physicians treated her as if she were a drug addict. She was in so much pain. They did not treat her appropriately. They did not treat her conditions appropriately. And she died. She literally died from COVID-19 and she did not have to die. Dr. Susan Moore died because of racism. So how have you and your institution replicated racism? So how has racism caused disease? This is the biggest part of our talk, y'all. Racism is the undergirding social determinant of health. When you look at the social terms of health as outlined by Healthy People 2030, if you look at educational policies and practices, we know we have unequal educational funding between public school districts that are most majority white and public school districts that are majority BIPOC. We know that there are higher unemployment and underemployment rates among people of color for a variety of the systemic racist reasons that we've discussed already in today's visit. Talk about the social and community context. We know that communities of color have more frequent contact with the legal system and are over policed. What about the neighborhood bill? We know of housing segregation that has been systemic and been going on for almost 100 plus years, as well as redlining. And look at underinsured rates and uninsured rates are higher in communities of color and there's fewer hospitals, less access to having a medical home and family-centered care. And racism is really expensive, y'all. In 2000, the US gross domestic product lost $16 trillion as a result of anti-Black discrimination and healthcare costs are very expensive. Health inequities just among Black folks alone led to $136 billion in access direct medical costs. It's expensive. And let's talk about the life course theory. Dr. Gilbert Gee has done incredible work looking at life course. And what he says life course is the experiences you have from your prenatal experiences all the way through life until you die. And those life experiences at different stages of your life are also influenced by the social climate and the political climate of where you live. And in your normal life trajectory, you will have some areas of gray where your life path is interrupted. But for the most part, you'll live out your full life expectancy. However, if your life course has been influenced and shaped by racism, then the effect of racism has a massive um, impact over time in shaping your life course and can eventually lead to a disparity in life expectancy or a shorter life expectancy. Then there's this idea of the weathering hypothesis that Dr. Geronimus postulated in the early 90s. And what Dr. Geronimus said is that weathering is this cumulative impact of repeated experiences with social and economic adversity and with political marginalization, i.e. systemic racism. And what she found among her studies, one of her studies is looking at uh, maternal age. And what she found is that these biomark biomarkers for allotic load, for stress response, 
were higher among Black women as they got older and it increased their risk of maternal mortality. And let's look at the biosocial model. Uh, this looks at the newer endocrine response in individuals who, are, who experience racism on a regular basis. So when you experience interpersonal racism, your brain identifies this as a stressor. This is called racial threat. So your amygdala gets involved, y'all. And so then you begin to set up in your hippocampus these patterns of remembering, uh, remembering circumstances that could lead to potential racial threat and racial violence. So then your sympathetic nervous system gets triggered and your HPA axis gets turned on. So as a receptor, you have this massive inflammatory response and, and uh, glucocorticoid output. And over time, this becomes like a positive feedback loop. So every time you're in experience, you're in a situation that could potentially be racially threatening, um, you have this physiologic response. And what that leads to over time is this epigenetic changes in gene expression related to experiences with racism. So studies have found that African-Americans who experience interpersonal and uh, internalized racism, their leukocyte telomere length is shorter, significantly shorter than those who haven't experienced or endorsed internalized racism and to whites compared to white Americans and other Americans. And they found that that is a marker for premature aging, early mortality and chronic disease. And this same finding has been in uh, placental DNA um, in the placental DNA of women, Black women who report experiences with racism. Let's talk about institutional racism in the form of redlining and how redlining causes disease. So this is the uh, New Haven redlining map, y'all, from 1937. So during 1930s, uh, during the Great Depression under Dr. President Roosevelt's um, presidency, the Homeowners Loan Corporation was um, established to grade neighborhoods across the United States in four categories. There was green, blue, yellow, and red. And uh, in these maps, over hundreds of cities, about 250 cities in the United States, the poor neighborhoods that were predominantly Black, Latino, and uh, immigrant were outlined with a red marker, and that was called redlining. So in New Haven, the Black and Latinx residents live in the same neighborhoods today that, they, that were redlined in the 1930s. So the, demographic, the population democrat, uh, demographics hasn't changed. And in New Haven, they found that white residents today live on blocks where there are no Black people and no Latinx residents. The vast majority of whites live in concentrated white neighborhoods. And they also found that in Connecticut, residents are much more likely to live in racially concentrated areas of either concentrated wealth or concentrated poverty. So almost 75% of folks in the greater New Haven area who are white live in areas that are 75% white but only 7% of black residents live in regions that are 75% black. Isn't that interesting? So whites are the one who are overwhelmingly segregating themselves from everybody else. Let's talk about pregnancy and birth outcomes. So we know as healthcare providers that black women have much higher mortality rates than uh, white women do. And infant mortality is more than twice that for black infants than it is for white infants. And what research has found is that there are biomarkers found in the bodies of black women who've experienced racism that contributes to poor, that is a sign of, of poor cellular immunity and increases the risk of uh, poor birth outcomes and mortality. And one of those markers is the Epstein-Barr virus viral capsular antigen immunoglobulin G, IgG. And what they found, this is higher in Black women who experience racial discrimination. So Dr. Collins, James Collins Jr. out of University of Chicago, who is the son of one of my attendings from residency in Detroit, Dr. Collins has conducted a kajillion studies. Like he is just prolific. He is brilliant. 
He is my hero. He's an OBGYN and he studies why do black women have higher mortality rates compared to white women, even if they're the same socioeconomic status. So he did this three generation study over the Illinois uh, population database. And this is what he found. He compared African born black women. There were also Caribbean born black women, European born white women who were given birth in the US. They had US born black women and US born white women. Now this US, these US born black women already have a high EBV, BCA, IgG, right? So this is what he found. First generation baby girl had normal birth weights for, for African-born Black women and U.S.-born white women, but they had low birth weights for the European-born white woman and the U.S.-born Black woman. But look what happened over three generations. Birth weights declined for the African-born Black women. So her daughter had normal birth weight, but her granddaughter and great-granddaughter had low birth weights. And the risk of infant mortality and maternal mortality increased with each generation. What about this European-born white woman? Well, her daughter was low birth weight, but her granddaughter and great-granddaughter had normal birth weights and got fatter with each generation. And the risk of mortality decreased with each generation. What about this US born black woman? Well, her daughter is low birth weight. Her granddaughter was low birth weight. Her great-granddaughter was low birth weight. And with each generation, the risk of mortality increased. And for US born white women, well, babies nice and healthy from every generation and her mortality is significantly lower. And what Dr. James and his colleagues postulate is that the experiences of racism in the United States is what leads to this differential um, outcome in birth and mortality. So at this moment, I want us to take a moment to honor the memory of Dr. Shanice Wallace. Dr. Shanice Wallace was a chief resident, pediatric resident at the University of Indiana, and she was pregnant last summer and developed symptoms of, of preeclampsia. And, you know, I'm not sure whether her health care was managed appropriately, but she died. She developed full-blown eclampsia and died two days after her baby was born. She is one of numerous examples in the media of Black women who are of high status, able to advocate for themselves, have high health literacy, but still die in childbirth. So let's talk about diseases in BIPOC adults and children. There are numerous studies that show poor health outcomes, physical and psychological outcomes for BIPOC adults and very negative psychological outcomes and some health outcomes for BIPOC children. We don't have as much data on the health outcomes of children. And it may be because the theory is that psychological outcomes uh, from the effect of racism happen first and then the health, physical health outcomes occur later. It is also possible that the NIH in its racist policies just didn't fund the studies for us to look at the health outcomes in children. I wanna talk about the health outcomes in whites. White people are dying because of racism too. There is something called dominant group status threat that we need to sit on for a second. Now, between 1999 and 2013, the morbidity and mortality rates of white men and women between the ages of 45 and 54 rose sharply. And this is the research that was done by doctors Case and Denton in 2015. It was an incredibly important study. And they refer to these particular specific deaths that led to the overall increased mortality rate for whites as deaths of despair. And those included alcoholism, suicide, and drug overdose, particularly opiates. At the same time, they found that other that BIPOC groups had decreased mortality rates in the same age group over the same period of time. And there were higher mortality rates of US whites compared to their European counterparts. 
So some time, some years later, Dr. Siddiqui and his his colleagues decided to figure out, well, why? Why are these middle-aged white folks dying um, at higher rates from these deaths of despair? And he postulated there was dominant group status threat. Dominant group status threat is the perception that whites' dominant social status is declining and being threatened as traditionally marginalized groups make progress, right? So, you know, having a Black president, um, having, you know, um, people in positions of power who are people of color, having changes in the laws and policies, unemployment rates going down among people of color threatens the status of some whites. So what they found is they took the same database and looked at certain questions that were, that were uh, completed in these population-based studies. And they found that whites who endorsed increased racial resentment, decreased happiness, and decreased uh, subjective social class were those who were at the highest risk of dying from death of despair. And we have found that those who have internalized racism, who've internalized the idea that they are inferior, even seniors in high school have twice the rate of binge drinking compared to their Black and Arab American counterparts. Whites who have internalized racism report low levels of flourishing, like just overall good mental health compared to Blacks and Latinx populations. And there's a higher mortality rate among whites report high rates of prejudice attitudes compared to their white neighbors who have lower rates of prejudice attitudes. So racism is killing white people too. It is bad for everybody, y'all. So how have we contributed in our institution to racism? So now, what is the response? Well, there's basically three ways you can respond to racism, in my opinion. You can internalize it, you can perpetuate it, or you can resist it. So internalizing racism is just continuing to believe in the superiority of white people and continuing to promote those policies. Perpetuating racism can happen by being passive or complicit, like a silent bystander, being colorblind, like ain't nothing happening, or just actively contributing to the system. And you can resist racism by actively working to interrupt and dismantle the system. So it's advocating for anti-racist policies at your institution and in your community, um, socializing children to have a healthy racial identity and to identify racism and not internalize it, and increasing your own racial literacy, which is your ability to identify and manage in the moment racial discriminatory racial encounters. So what has been your response? And now let's talk about treatment. There are a whole bunch of evidence-based uh, methods that are coming out to address racism in healthcare. And I'm sure you all know about the AAP policy on racism that was published in 2019. If you have read it, I invite you to reread it. If you haven't read it, I invite you to read it. But they give recommendations for optimizing workforce development, community engagement, our research, and our uh, the way we engage with our uh, clinical practice. And then Dr. Patricia Devine uses her habit-breaking interventions to address prejudice habit-breaking. And she talks about these five ways of breaking your uh, prejudice habit-breaking. Now, you're not gonna know what your prejudices are, your implicit biases are, until you take the implicit association test from Project Implicit in Harvard. And I invite everybody to take that test and believe the results. You might not wanna believe the results, but believe the results. And what she says is that we need to engage in these five practices, stereotype replacement, counter-stereotype imaging, individuation, uh, um, perspective taking, which requires cross-cultural empathy, what I call cross-cultural empathy, and increase opportunities for meaningful contact with people that don't look like you or believe like you or pray like you or love like you. There is a proposal out there for the ACGME to change some of their core competencies and update them to address racism and other social determinants of health. 
and I was appointed to the American Board of Pediatrics Task Force to update the Entrustable Professional Activity A14, EPA 14, and we've updated to include issues of race, racism, and social determinants of health. We need to just overall decolonize medical education um, to address racism, social determinants of health, and provider implicit bias and how those things affect our health and our health disparities. And then uh, my mentor, Lee Pachter, who is the editor of the Journal for Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics, wrote this beautiful editorial back in September of 2020, where he called for editors and journals to provide guidance to authors and researchers on how to address racism as an operational factor in race in their work. And that means that our re journal reviewers, we need journal reviewers who have expertise in the issues of race and racism, just like you have journal reviewers who have expertise in statistical analysis and in epidemiology. So what has been your treatment for racism at Connecticut Children's? So I received this information from you guys that you have a diversity, equity, and inclusion platform at your institution and a committee that addresses and provides resources to the faculty and staff uh, regarding issues of race and racism. So today we talked about in order for racism to survive, it requires a host, a mode of transmission, a means of replicating in the system, it causes disease, it elicits a response, but in order to destroy racism, it needs treatment. Thank you. Thank you uh, very, very much uh, for a, a truly outstanding presentation and for um, bringing us some reality and uh, hopefully making some of us feel uncomfortable so we actually can think about this because you can't I'm an infectious disease provider, and you really can't treat the infection unless you feel the fever. Uh, the right count goes up, right? And so, so I feel a little febrile right now, and so that, and that's a good thing because then we can think about this. Um, it, it is uh, past nine, so we have just. I'm going to uh, ask Rob for a couple of questions, um, and then we unfortunately have to sign off, but we will answer questions uh, offline through uh, the presentation, and we're getting a lot of incredible feedback, so thank you again. Thank you. From uh, uh, Dr. Alberto Cohen-Abo, uh, a recent article showed that academic faculty did not know that the reason that their institution was not diverse was the fact that they were blind to their bias. How can we improve the diversity of our colleagues, residents, and students? Well, it's, that's a very important, that's like the million dollar question, right? Well, it's every, everything starts with the leadership. This has to be the priority of the leaders of your institution, the leaders of your departments, and the leaders of your divisions. Um, it is important that the leadership receive uh, training in racism and racial bias. It's very important. And it's not just a one-time thing. Like, you know, we've had a thousand lectures on autism. We've had a million lectures on ADHD. We can, we've had a kajillion lectures on infectious disease. We can have on, on ear infections, right? Otitis media. You can have a million lectures on racism and you would never cover the whole topic. And it's important that the leadership be trained and that then you put into place very truly systematic objective measures for deciding who is hired. Because what ends up happening is we don't use a blinded process for hiring and our implicit biases take over when we hire. And we tend to hire people that look like us, which is why we have lower levels of faculty being recruited who are BIPOC populations. Now, less than 5% of physicians are Black, less than 5% of physicians are Latinx. But we are out there and we exist. The second thing is having a system in place where there is ongoing training for the faculty and for the staff, including the, the front desk staff, the housekeeping staff, 
and bring all voices to the table. When you're talking about changing policies within your institution that are more inclusive and decrease discrimination, you need to find out who's not at the table. So very often we bring people to the table that we're comfortable with. We need to bring the folks that, have, that, that traditionally don't have a voice. The cafeteria workers, the IT guys, the housekeeping staff, the clerks, the schedulers, everyone needs to be at the table to help have a voice in forming these institutional policies. And then there's ongoing measurement. We don't know how strong we are until we measure our outcomes. So that is just kind of an abbreviated answer to that question that I hope answers it. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Rob, if you can close us up, please. Um, Adia, thank you so much. Um, I think that you've really done um, what you, you've always done for me, which has inspired me to learn more. And I think that you have um, lit a fire for our audience. Um, for anyone who is looking for more information, we invite you to go to EADS and pull up Dr. Spinks Franklin's handout. But um, this is the beginning of a journey and I am super excited and grateful to have had the privilege of having Dr. Adia Spinks Franklin join us today. So a big round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. We'll close and we'll see you on Friday uh, for Ask the Experts and then back again on Tuesday. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.